and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Morag Barrett helps leaders achieve outstanding results through the power of their professional relationships. And everything that Morag touches, everything she writes, everything she talks about, really does come back to this power of we, this power of relationship, of friendship. So she has three different books, Cultivate, The Future-Proof Workplace, and You, Me, We. And once again, they are all seeped in this idea that we need to have friends at work, we need to cultivate allies at work, relationships are key and critical to high performance. Morag excels at helping leaders and organizations see the gaps in their development and discover new ways to move past them. She's pragmatic, that's gonna become clear in today's conversation. She mixes science and art, which we discuss as well, and she finds unique solutions to problems, usually through the power of connection, communication, relationship building. And she is someone who takes great joy and pride in her work, 
And at her core, she just thinks we need to rethink collaboration, connection, allyship, instead of thinking about a lot of organizations who only emphasize competitiveness or a ladder that needs to be climbed. And there's a moment in today's conversation that really struck me that I'm going to highlight here. There's a moment where we talk about, should you manage up? Should you manage down? Should you develop managers to be better at managing down and onboard people so that they can better manage up? And more I've challenged me and since I've challenged some of my clients to think about this middle level, this level of when we have an executive team, for example, how do we get that executive team to manage each other and collaborate and connect with each other and be allies rather than adversaries? So that's a nice teaser to what today's conversation is all about. So here is Morag Barrett. Morag, thank you for coming on the podcast. I often say that the things that are said after we're recording or before we are recording are often just as interesting, if not more interesting than what we actually say when the little red blinking light is going on on the computer. And you said something that just caught my attention that completely derailed my plan for my first question for you, which I think I'm going to lean into, which is idea, which is this idea that humans often uh, face peer pressure from dead people and that they often follow that peer pressure when making decisions. I've never heard that phrase before. Uh, tell me a little more about how you see people maybe falling into a peer pressure trap from people that aren't even alive anymore. Well, so that was a phrase that popped into my head a year or so ago. And it's funny because when we're at middle school, you know, the prime, we're being teased, bullied by our compatriots, and we're told to stand up for ourselves and not succumb to peer pressure. You don't need the fancy trainers' sneakers to keep up with your friends. These sneakers will do. And yet, I know in my own life, the early part of my living on this planet was guided by those peer pressure expectations of what it meant to be successful what is expected of a woman in business or a woman in a family life. And that came from my grandparents. It came from just family customs and routines. And I suddenly realized I was, like I was coaching a leader who was stuck with something and the phrase peer pressure from dead people came to mind. And it sounds really callous, but at some point we have to make our own choices around what is my definition of success? What does my one life on this planet, what do I want it to look like? And I get to guide that versus blindly following what I might've been told when I was seven. What's changed about how you follow your own steps and your journey compared to what you might have been told when you were seven? So customs around, and, and you know, I'm still putting my toe in the water here because as I've told my team, I love risk until it becomes risky. I'll walk on the cracks on the pavement and then I'll, you know, I'm going to keep mixing my metaphors, color within the lines but I'll think about it for Sky Team, my colleagues, Eric and Ruby, who I co-authored our book, You, Me, We with, we have decided that we're not hell-bent on world, world domination. When it comes to Sky Team, our values and why we do it is to have fun, to do great work, 
to have fun, to work with great clients, and to have fun. It is not necessarily about growing to $10 million worth of revenue, to have a team of 50 people, to have offices around the world. Those might be traditional measures of success that we have chosen to put to one side and create a business and a life as a result that we love and thrive in. You've been in the US now for some time, but you grew up overseas in the UK. And uh, you mentioned Eric and Ruby. And even as we're recording this, it's Sky Team. Uh, and so there was a decision at some point where you just said, hey, I want to collaborate. I want to be part of a team. Your first book, you wrote. Your second book, you wrote with them. And, and so what I was most curious about coming into today's conversation is why lean into collaboration? Why lean into partnership? Um, why create a team when a lot of people in our line of work go at it alone? Um, what was the drive or the draw for you to collaborate and partner and team up? It's the reality that this game of life or the game of work is just that. It's a team sport. And early in my life and my career, again, this is what I was told, to be successful, keep your head down, keep your nose clean, work hard, and you will get rewarded. And that's true, but again, peer pressure from old world thinking, but it only gets you so far. And true success, our ab ability to be better together, that's our mantra at Sky Team, better together, better together with each other, better together with our clients, comes through the courage and vulnerability to do this with others. And starting your own business, I mean, you'll know this, Brian, it can be very lonely. In fact, later on this year in February, I'm launching a small mentoring group for other solopreneurs who have each said to me, I feel lonely. I don't know where to go. How do I get advice? Well, let's start that and peer coach. And if they can accelerate their success by learning from some of my early mistakes at Sky Team or our current successes at Sky Team, then yay, go us. We'll all be better together. So that's it. It's all about the relationships that we have at work and in life that determine our health, happiness, and success. When I got married, our, our first dance, the song was Better Together by Jack Johnson. And so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that song, but uh, yeah, and I think of marriage and I think of there's risk in marriage when 50% of the time it fails, um, yet many of us decide to, to go that path. And I think everyone can focus on the failures of marriage, but even failed marriages have all kinds of successes to them with kids and um, with a story. And uh, and just because people fall in and out of love or, or something doesn't work, it doesn't mean it, it was necessarily a failure. Uh, and so um, anyway, I'm, I'm thinking about my marriage when you said better together. It's hard for me not to hearken back to, hearken back to our wedding. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to do some like R and B jam, like I like Boys to Men was what I wanted, but I got overruled, which is which is sort of something you got to learn when you're in partnership with people. Um, but I want to go back to culture here with because uh, I mentioned that you're from the UK and in the US, and I've been talking about this a lot lately. Is that when I have people on the podcast, and I've interviewed quite a bit of people from all walks of life and different industries, one of the takeaways has been over seven years is collaboration and the power of collaboration. And yet I feel like American society, 
we're often said, no, it's the individual. It's the individual that goes and creates something. And, you know, they didn't come from anything and they made it and look at them. And we sort of glamorize and, and glorify entrepreneurs or athletes or actors. And we say, look at that individual genius. And yet whenever I study it or whenever I have these people on my podcast, there's always a collaborative thing underneath the individual genius. And I'm wondering for you, having spent a lot of time in the UK versus the US, what is your perspective culturally when it comes to team and individual? Are there differences? Are there similarities as far as how we look at collaboration and teamwork versus an individual? And and, and what's your perspective on the cultures there? Well, I think it goes back to that peer pressure thing. So if you think about our schooling, whether it's in the UK or here, it is all about individual performance, me versus the exam board. And I graduate in the top 10% of my class. It's me, me, me. And even if we do collaborate, there is a chance that it is misinterpreted as cheating, unless it's a specific group task. And even then it's frustrating. And yet the world of work is the biggest team sport you can participate in. Because if you're in a larger organization, it doesn't matter if you've got the best HR team in the world who's recruiting talent, if your sales organization isn't able to bring in the clients and, and make those sales. And you can have the best HR and the best sales team, but if your operations is not able to build or turn up that service, you are going to suffer. So everything is connected but the world I play in, the leaders I am coaching invariably are looking to break down the politics silos, the turf wars, the infighting that invariably happens as organizations scale and grow that slow down information flow, undermine the quality of the decisions and ultimately undermine success and career reputations every single day. And so collaboration, the culture of we, I mean, this is why our book is called You, Me, We, because we all, we are somewhat good at looking inward at our own perspective and what we want, though my colleague, Dr. Tasha Europe would point out from her research that self-awareness is pretty low for any of us. But if I'm curious about you and what does success look like for you, Brian, then I can communicate in a way that connects with you what I, the me bit, am trying to do. And then the Venn diagram is, okay, so how do we move forward together? And that is the secret to success. Whether or not you're a world-class athlete, you've known I want to be a world-class athlete, but now you're looking out and searching out the coaches, the physical coaches, the mental coaches, the financial coach, all of the team, to your point, that is hidden behind the scenes that allow then you to excel in whatever career it might be. Nobody gets to the pinnacle of fame or success on their own at all, ever. It's a and myth. It's, it's interesting when we look into teams, if I ask any, let's just stay in sports for a minute. If I ask any head coach of an elite sports team, let's just say college sports and above, you know, what traits are you looking for in your athletes? They almost all will say competitive. Competitive is a baseline. It's table stakes. If you're not competitive in sports, you're not going to make it. And they create their environments, their practices for competition. We want to have a competitive environment. Where I think it becomes a challenge for them is you sort of hit this earlier, hit on this earlier in business is, all right, we can create the competitive cauldron and the environment, but now we're creating rivalries internally rather mm -hmm. than 
finding ways to also collaborate with each other and make each other better. And so how do we continue to have a competitive spirit while making sure that we're going against maybe the right adversary um, and we're collaborating together to get to where we want to go? How do, how do you bring in competition with collaboration? So there's a push-pull so I think about myself, I'm hyper-competitive or a hyper-achiever. And you started in the green room by saying you'd done some research, you'd seen my podcast, you'd read the books, and there was a lot of stuff out there. And the first thing in my thought head was, oh, is there? I, I never think I'm doing enough. Sorry. You, sent so me a PDF, you sent me a PDF yesterday with 20 questions that I could potentially ask you. And I was like, this is amazing. Look at this. This person has given me everything I need to have a conversation with her. Look, I've had over 350 people on the podcast. I don't often get a 20, you know, a, a PDF that's clean and clear. That's why I send a form ahead of time to try to gather this information. And I didn't even need the form with you. I There it is. There's my form. And it was organized. And so, yeah, I know that it's something you, you're passionate about, you care about. So um, it's just interesting to note that a lot of people don't operate with that. They don't. And it's interesting. And again, I wonder if it's just because they've never been told or not have the courage to test it out. I mean, as Ruby tells me, the work we do is all about how do we help others to make their life and work lighter and easier. So knowing that there would be questions, well, here are 20, use them, don't use them, and we'll have a conversation, we'll follow the route as it unfolds, but at least you've got a starting point. And when it comes to competition, I think the mistake we make is, again, we see it in the movies, it's the dog eat dog, the can I win and beat you? which means that I'm operating from a scarcity mindset and this is a win-lose re relationship and that is unhealthy. Instead, if I think about it, Eric, Ruby and I compete with each other all the time, but we do it and we will be laughing as we're running to the finish line because this is uh, about how do we learn and grow together? What did you do when you facilitated that executive team retreat that unlocked the power of that conversation, Eric? And then how do I now adopt and adapt that to the Morag approach with the team I might be working with? And that's where, when you can take her away the, am I looking over my shoulder worried about the next stab in my back and who's my rival and who's out to get me? And instead, three of us are focused on, are we having fun doing great work, having fun working with great clients and having fun? That's when the growth mindset, the continuous improvement just accelerates. I get goosebumps as I think about it, as I think about the clients who've been able to shift from scarcity and me first and hoarding information and hoarding talent to one of we first, in which case, what can I give in order to gain so that we both can raise our collective bars and achieve things we may not have thought were possible. So the first time you said fun and then fun again, I was like, oh, she just made a mistake, but you just did it again. So why do you 2x fun? Well, 3x, because life is short and good grief. If it's like a millstone, then we're doing it wrong. And this is part, I think, of what we've been sold, which is that Nirvana, well, it's just like this work is hard and it's the hamster wheel. It doesn't have to be that way. If we like the people we work with, then lean into those relationships and have the moments of joy. If you're working as I am mostly remotely, even though Eric and Ruby are here in Colorado too, then lean into the relationships and how you're building them through Zoom or Teams. It is possible. You don't have to feel 
disconnected. You don't have to feel lonely. You don't have to feel, well, it's just me and I'm broken. When you're having a tough day, we all have tough days. But being able to make that call and say, hey, Eric, I need a shot of Eric. I'm struggling today. What, you know, give me the pick me up or can you help me on this project? That's the difference between isolation, disconnection, stress and anxiety and feeling part of and belonging to something bigger that allows us to thrive. I want to connect self-awareness because you brought it up earlier and I want to bring that into the conversation. Uh, you said something that really resonated with me that's very simplistic, but very powerful, which is our job should be to make other people's jobs easier, to make their life easier, to make it better. And I use a lot of sports analogies, so I'll just use one here, which is I once talked to a general manager of a, a professional basketball team, and I said, yeah, that guy's a great passer. And he said to me, he's like, he's not a great passer. I go, well, he can make any pass anywhere on the floor. He sees people when they, they're not even expecting him to pass them the ball. He he does all these things that make him a talented passer. And he said, yeah, but he passes the ball to them. And when he does that, he puts them in a worse spot than they were in before. I thought about it. And I was like, whoa, a great passer. The whole idea of a great passer is they put someone in a better position than they were before they received the ball and not in a worse position. And so even though the passer looked good because it was a no look pass and no one was expecting it and it was flashy and it was cool, it was actually hurting the team and the teammate who was receiving it. And what I'm thinking about in this is that that player making the pass was not aware that they were actually making bad passes. They were like, I'm making great passes but they yes. weren't aware of how their passes were impacting the people that were receiving the pass. And so maybe we can talk about what leads to a great teammate. How do we help build the self-awareness in the person to know that even though that is a quote unquote good pass, it actually put them in a worse spot by throwing it to them. So I don't know if that analogy makes sense and we don't need oh, to say in sports, but yeah, I'm curious to get your perspective on that. So for me, it's about making the implicit explicit. And what I'm saying there is the guy making, or the, the woman making the pass assumes it's implicit that you're going to catch the ball, that you know where I want you to take it next, that you even have the capacity to catch the ball. And making the implicit explicit is about the audible. So I was actually picturing a different analogy. I'm a musician, but it was jazz. I remember going and watching a jazz set and I'm only learning jazz now. I'm a classical musician by training. But what stood out for me was that you had five highly talented musicians on that stage. It was high trust between them but what really made the set different was when they passed off the solos, when they were playing together, there was the, oh, yeah. And, over, you know, like there were the audibles being called as it went. And we don't do that in, in work. Often, well, Brian and I have worked for 20 years. If I ask him how he's doing, he's going to think I'm soft or he's going to think I don't trust him anymore. Well, no, the fact that we've worked for 20 years is the very time we should be checking in and saying, hey, are we set up for success for the next 20 years together? So that feed forward, the 
hey, what's working for you? What's not? The actually calling, Brian, heads up, the ball's coming your way. The, oh yeah, that was great. And a nod of approval to the, the, the solo that just happened as I now pick up and run with it. That's what makes the difference and helps a team to come together, build the trust, but also make those handoffs sim- um, effortless. And I would imagine they're also, if I can reflect after a game and look at the film and note, oh, I thought that was a good pass, but I actually screwed you <laughs> and my bad, right? And then I can own that was a mistake. And then I start recognizing that what I think might be, might have been a good pass might actually not have been a good pass and have the humility to take a look at underneath the hood and see what's there. But I even want to go before that, like self-awareness. I'm telling you, I've never worked with anyone who thinks that they're not self-aware. I've never worked with someone who says to me, Brian, I lack self-awareness. It hasn't happened yet. And it's kind of like drivers. It's like everyone thinks that they're an above average driver when we all know that there are people that are just really bad drivers. So like, it's the question that I don't know the answer to, which is, how do we help someone who thinks they're self-aware, but they're actually not aware of the damage they may be doing? So a couple of things. Certainly, I mentioned Dr. Tasha Urich earlier. Her book, Insight, would be a great start. Um, and it's likening, you know, I I have self-awareness in terms of I glanced in the mirror this morning before to make sure the hair was okay. But after lunch, you, I may not know I've got spinach in my teeth until you or somebody else points it out. And a lot of the self-awareness, it comes down to language and having the courage and asking questions, curiosity of what made you choose that course of action without saying, oh, yes, stupid, which I will admit I may have used with my boys when they were young in my less than stellar parenting hours. So asking questions of, hey, are you ready to catch this ball? What do you think you might do with it next? That can give me courage to throw it and pass it, knowing that you are going to take it in the right direction. Or even asking, you know, I'm working on getting better at articulating the vision I have for Sky Team. What's one piece of advice you have for me? Taking it on advisement and then adapting and adopting whatever I think might work. And then next month saying to you, Brian, as you know, I've been working on better communicating my vision for Sky Team. How am I doing? Thumbs up? Much the same? Or have I got worse? Great. What's one piece of advice you have for the next 30 days? And just keeping that dialogue going. Because if I go back to your analogy of being an above average driver, what I'm doing there is checking with my passengers regularly. Are you having fun on this journey or are you holding on for dear life? Absolutely terrified. And this is a way of raising self-awareness and adjusting how I'm driving, how I'm leading, how I'm showing up to help you and ultimately, therefore, me to be more successful, quicker and easier. And if I go to your texts and your books, the tool that I know you love to use is 360s. And so Mm -hmm. a 360 can often help someone increase their awareness because now all of a sudden they are aware, they're reading feedback on what they might be doing well, where they can improve, what what should they learn, et cetera. And so I I didn't even think about that when I asked that question, but as you were talking, I was thinking about, oh yeah, like the use of 360s can be a massive tool. Um, Speaking of like assessment and data, 
I think one of the things that drew me to this interview was I love people that have a range of identities. Uh, I struggle with people who are just one thing and that's all they are. Um, I find it highly interesting when people have complexity to them. So I'm going to give you that as a compliment. Uh, and, and the compliment stems from you have this background in commercial finance, you know, numbers, you're studying numbers, you were going to be an engineer. Um, and yet you mentioned your classical musician, your ballroom dancer, you're now, you know, studying the art of jazz. Um, <laughs> and so I'm curious for you, how do you blend art with science uh, at SkyTeam? So art and science, the art, I mean, if I just go at a transactional level, I think about the materials that we create to help spark and inspire change in the leaders, the programs we put together. And it's not death by PowerPoint, but they are, they are beautiful. We have a graphic designer I adore, I adore who helps us to take what is fairly dry theory and make it visually appealing and memorable, whilst then the art and science that Eric, Ruby, and I do is engaging the heart by helping create an environment where people feel able to say, you know what, I've never done that well, or here's an example of where I fell over and grazed my knee, or here's an example of where I tripped somebody else up unintentionally, but the relationship has been damaged, and how do I come back from that? Because being the smartest person in the room, graduating in your top 10%, um, knowing and having all the degrees and the books and the whatever, that's just table stakes that gets you invited to play with us or play with you at the organization that you're part of today. But every time I ask leaders, who are the people you would jump at the chance to work with again? They rarely mention smarts. They rarely mention technical competence. Everything that people remember is that heart-led, the way they made me feel. They took a risk on me before I knew I was ready. They gave me the feedback I needed to hear, not just the platitudes I wanted to hear. They gave me a kick in the pants. They picked me up after a career failure. And it's all about the art, the misnomered soft skills that make somebody truly a go-to leader versus an arrogant go-from leader. So that's that how we balance it. Like, where are you spending your time? Is it all logical and spreadsheets and data? Where are you pausing to actually find the complexity that is in everybody? But if you haven't seen it yet, it's because you haven't made that connection at a human level for that person to want to even share some of that complexity with you. So we go back to that push-pull of competing and collaborating. Look, we all know there are alpha, highly competitive contributors uh, to organizations. And mm -hmm. some of them are lone wolves and they go out, they produce, they get left alone. Hey, they do their thing. Uh, and sometimes those producers end up becoming leaders and managers and really struggle because they know how to compete for themselves but they don't necessarily know how to inspire others. And you mentioned spending time with other people. And in your book, you reference research that says managers spend 70 to 90% of their time working with others. And yet our hiring processes, our promotional processes, often in my view, and I don't have research to back this up, over-index on production and over-index on 
an individual's ability to compete and under-index on their capacity to collaborate and to bring out others' genius. Um, I guess it's a two-part question, which I don't like to do that often, but the first part is, you know, why do we do that? And the second part is, if if you believe we do do that, what should we be doing when we're thinking about hiring and promoting people uh, from within? Well, this is one of the reasons I moved from the, the finance side to the leadership development side. It's that focus on the business results, the what we do, the what we make, the how we organize, the systems that we use, the how do I submit my expenses, that logical transactional piece that is more quantifiable, in-tray, out-tray, in-tray, out-tray. And the true magic is actually on the people side, the who we are as individuals, the complexity that we all bring, both within the four walls that are our office and our lives as a whole, and then the how we relate. And that is where I think most manage. So in the research I've done with a tens of thousands of leaders that I've worked with will often ask, where do you and other leaders in this organization spend most of your time? And it will be focused on delivering those business results and the processes. And yet what causes the most stress and anxiety, it's the, my top talent is leading, leaving. I've got to give this tough feedback. This team isn't getting on with that team. It's all around the how we relate in the interpersonal skills. And so we work very extensively with organizations to build that culture around the ally mindset tool that you will have seen, creating the culture of candor and how do we get to the right conversations at the right time so we can hold each other accountable? How do we break down the rival relationships that may be, again, slowing down information and causing internal friction? How do we make it smoother so that we can get the what we do to market? easier and stay ahead of the, the competition. What do you think gets in the way of, of organizations collaborating and, and creating allyship? Well, there's the, Miss, uh, every meeting you think about it, we're all over scheduled, the double, triple booked Zoom, endless teams meetings. My guess is a lot of them start off with, well, Brian, how's the project going? Even just taking two minutes to say, Brian, how was your holidays? How was your year end? What's top of mind for you? Is enough to start learning the complexity that makes you special. Helps me to understand when you say, well, actually, my cat just passed away. Okay, now I know you might not be firing on all cylinders, maybe somewhat distracted in this conversation. Now we've got a choice. Oh, Brian, sorry about the cat. Should we focus on this now? Or at least I give you the benefit of the doubt if you seem somewhat distracted. So asking these questions, connecting at a human level, is what allows us then to have the courage and vulnerability to own up with what's working, what's not, to then have the candor and debate needed to solve the complex problems that many organizations are facing right now, to then make an informed decision around the actions that need to be taken to ensure mutual success. It starts and ends with, do I care about you? Do I help you make the implicit explicit. Do you know that I care about you? And do I care about you and how we get the results together? So for me, that's the organization I want to be a part of. That's who I want to interact with. That's who I want to, I want to hang with. And you make a case for developing friends at work and developing best friends at work. I know other people in my life and I have clients who they'd say, I just want to go to work, do my job, get paid. And then I've got my friends outside of work. I got my family. 
Like, just let me do my job. And I, I don't want you to know about my cat dying. I don't want you to know about my uncle struggling. This is actually the space for me to just execute and not to worry about any of the challenges or problems I'm having. What do you say to organizations who have people like that? And, and how do you approach people that don't want to have friends at work and want to keep them separate? Separation of church and state, essentially. So all of the above. So it is a choice. And what I'm not espousing is that you have to bear your soul and share everything. Because let's be clear, there are some things about Morag Barrett that are best kept in my head. However, what I have learned, because I was that person, I had two separate boxes. I had my work persona, which was the British stiff upper lip, nothing to see here. I know what I'm doing. Let's just focus on you. And I am a master at asking questions and turning the focus from me to you. And I share this story in Cultivate, which was coaching the CFO of a European business. And invariably, we talked about the business challenges, the challenges with his team, with his colleagues, et cetera. He had also, because it was a safe space, shared some of the family challenges he was facing. And I am not an expert in solving those, but I can provide a deep listening, a deep presence ear where people feel heard. And as a result, they hear themselves speak and they come to their own conclusions as to what they might want to do. But that allowed us to get to the business coaching at a deeper level because he had chosen to share with me. However, and this goes back to the lack of self-awareness, I thought I was doing great because I helped him turn his career and reputation around until he pointed out to me that whilst I knew all this about him, he knew nothing about me. And so this has been my, my learning journey over the last 10, 15 years, is to open up a little bit more about the fact that I reached burnout level and was lying on the sofa on my patio here uh, two summers ago, I literally could not move because of the stress and anxiety, but I hadn't shared it with colleagues beforehand. But being a, but I have now, being able to share those moments of vulnerability and either just, I just need you to listen, Brian, because I just need to put this millstone down, don't need you to do anything, or, hey, Brian, I need you to listen, and then Help me to navigate. What do I do next? Or actually, Brian, I need you to listen. And I know you've got the answer. Can you now go fix this? That, again, is making the implicit explicit. When a, a colleague comes to me now or a client comes to me and I, I will be very explicit around, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to coach? Do you need me to solve? And then that allows them to tell their story to the depth and breadth that they want but now we can both step up and take the appropriate level of action that's needed to move forward together. What did you learn from your burnout? That I, oh, so this, uh, I have learned so much. The solution in that case was I hang the expense. I bought tickets to go and see Hugh Jackman in The Music Man. I was like three rows from the front. It was amazing. But it also reminded me that since the pandemic, so that's now several years, I have not played music. I have not ballroom danced. And this was an important part of my life that I am now reintegrating. And so what did I learn from that moment of burnout is that I can only run so fast for so long. 
And I need to be prioritizing my health and self-care so that I can be stronger and better positioned to solve others. Helping others at my own expense was the unhealthy that brought me to lying on the patio, watching the cloud formations, thinking, I, I cannot move. I cannot move. When I hear you say that, I think I went to grad school for sports psychology. And so my my program was housed in a, a more traditional psychology department. And as you were saying earlier about your client who knew nothing about you, but you knew everything about him, there's something in my brain that goes back to grad school because they used to tell us that self-disclosure was lazy and that when you're working with someone your job is to be in service to them. And anything that you might be self-disclosing in a session is taking away from their experience. And if you've ever seen a therapist before, which I have, you know that traditional therapists, I'm, I'm generalizing an entire industry, the focus is on you. And their job is to ask you questions and help you explore. And it's, they're not disclosing that they may be going through a divorce or that they may have burned out or that they may be struggling with diet and exercise or whatever the struggle may be. And I, I, I just want to want to spend some time here because to me, whenever we get educated, that's like baseline foundational, but we need to then go and figure out what works for us and what doesn't work for us. And for me, I've been to my clients' weddings. I've become friends with them. I go out to dinner with them. We'll break bread. We'll drink wine together. Um, and I've gone on vacation with clients. But I think back to my grad program sometimes and I'm like, am I, am I doing it wrong? Like, am I, am I crossing a boundary here? Is there anything ethically that I may be doing by disclosing or by crossing a line here? So I'm curious for you, as, as you have maybe opened up more about yourself with your clients, is, has there been any regret? Has there been any parts that you look back and you're like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have disclosed um, when, when you go about creating that connection? So I think the answer is there's a time and place for all of this. I am not a psychologist. I am not a trained therapist. What I am is a trained executive coach, and that is a different environment. And so, yes, there are different standards and expectations depending on the nature of the conversation that we're having. But if we come back to the world of work, you know, I'll ask leaders, is it okay to fail here? And you'll get people, well, of course, whilst shaking their heads, no. And that's what we're trying to break down because we can say we want innovation and creativity and risk-taking, but if the culture is one that's actually going to penalize me for doing it, A, I'm either not going to do it and therefore leaders are going to get frustrated or others are going to get frustrated because they're not getting the things they're asking for. Or I'm going to do it and I'm going to sandbag because I'm certainly not going to go all in if this is going to risk my career. Or I'm doing it, but in, I have a knot in my stomach and I'm stressed and anxious because I'm waiting for that rival, that knife in the back for the, the shoe to fall and, and for me to be held accountable. And what if instead we could create a one-to-one -one relationship as a start, or even as a team, as I have at Sky Team, a team of allies of high trust that says, hey, I know you're going to mess up at some point, and when you do, I have your back and we're going to learn from grow and grow from it. 
And do you know why? Because I know that there is going to be a time when I'm going to mess up. I'm going to miss a deadline, forget a type, you know, make a typo, say something that perhaps doesn't translate. Because I've learned English, English and American English, two different things. And I have some stories around that. But you will then give me the benefit of the doubt. That's what I'm saying. So becoming friends at work, going back to your earlier point, isn't necessarily that we're going to hang out after work, that you're going to come home and meet my mother, that this is for life. But we are friends at work that mean that for this project, for this time in this organization, I know what you're capable of. You understand what I'm capable of. And we've got those handoffs and those ball passes happening, happening effortlessly without fear and with fun. I think you make the case There's a for, lot there. No, you, the make, you, you make the case for interdependence as opposed to independence. Independence. And, yes. Yes. And so that's what I'm hearing there. I want this to just be like blunt and honest, right? So, and this is where I will self-disclose. And by the way, my opinion on self-disclosure as, as it currently stands is it's, if you're going to have a true connection with somebody at some point to your point earlier, there has to be an ability to disclose. And I think, and I would say the world of psychology needs to continue to evolve and needs to continue to think about how they're showing up. And there's a lot of different ways that people can get support and help. And there's a lot of different reasons to go see someone for support and help. And there's not one way to do it. That's sort of where I come at this. But I want to go to teamwork for a second. I know for me, there are times like I wrote my book. I I have a I had a coach who helped me, an editor, a team, but I was writing it. If I were to co-write it with two other people, I, first of all, I don't know how good of a teammate I would have been. And second of all, it, it would have slowed me down. It would have it would have slowed me down. Uh, and by the way, it took me four years to write my book. And so um, I. I'm wondering about the downsides of of collaboration, the downsides of teamwork, because up until this point in this interview, there is like, it's wonderful. And, and that's where we, if we want to go far, let's go together rather than alone. And, and I believe in that. And yet there are definitely times in my life where I'm like, you know what? I just need to go at this alone, make it happen. And, and I think it often is around speed and that, like I can go fast when I'm by myself. Certainly, I think I can go faster when I'm by myself than I'm with a team. And sometimes speed is what's required. Where and and sometimes a team has actually gotten in the way or blocked me or failure to launch because there's so much feedback that we're not actually going and doing the damn thing and experimenting. So in your world, in your space, has there ever been a time where you actually move away from interdependence and toward independence? Or has there been a time where the team has actually gone in the way for you? Oh, all of the above. I mean, there's an African proverb, which is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so when we wrote You, Me, We, we started to do it as a threesome. And the reason is I wrote um, Cultivate Myself, like you. It took two years from first writing it to getting it onto bookshelves. It took six months and I'd written three chapters because I kept getting distracted. And so I put together a book advisory board, six leaders, three who knew me well, three who knew me in passing. And it was like an accountability group. And I would send them a, a chapter, they would read it and edit it, and then we'd get on a conference call to discuss it. And I still remember to this Dale, day, Dale, bless his heart, I adore him for this. The, 
we I sent out the first chapter and we got onto the conference call and I said, so what did you all think? And there was this silence. I'll describe it as an awkward silence. And then Dale spoke up and said, well, was it just me or was it really boring? And I remember putting my head on the table because that was the exact feedback I needed. It is role modeling, being an ally. He didn't just say, oh, it was fine. And let me continue down that route. He had the courage to say, was it boring? At which point everybody else went, yes, because it turns out I write as a dissertation without even contractions. And so we were then able to talk about stories and real world examples. And I would go back and add those in. So I write those. Another example, when Ruby first came to work with me, she had a conversation with Eric around, well, is Morag mad at me? Because she would email me or slack me and say, hey, what do you think of this? And I would just literally go back, yes, because I trust her. She's great. Fantastic. Make it happen. But she was reading those short emails as I was being curt, dismissive. So now I make a habit of going back, going, hey, Ruby, how was your holiday? You know, the, the hugs and kisses. And I'm better at doing all of that more naturally now because I've been flexing that muscle. But recognizing that my communication style of fast and to the point wasn't what was engaging, was actually causing more uncertainty and doubt in others, means that I'm being more intentional. I'm thinking about how do I need to show up in this relationship and then reflecting, as you described earlier on, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, on did I do my best and where do I need to give extra care and attention today, this week, next month? When I did a 360 for myself with my team of people that I interact with, one of the only, I wish there was more, one of the only like true negative feedback I got was that I can be short on text. Um, so what you're saying resonates with me, but it it harkens me back to your book where you mentioned that you worked for a toxic boss earlier in your career. And it's got me wondering, um, as you reflect on that toxic boss, was it what what caused the toxicity there? Like what was underneath the toxicity in your opinion, in your perspective? If if this person, yeah, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. What what causes a toxic boss, um, at least in your experience? And and what do you think caused that then? So there's a, a, a couple of things that I want to share on that that come to mind. Firstly, the toxic boss from early in my career, what triggered that feeling of um, why was it a tough relationship? Because she took credit for work that I had done but I was still junior in the bank. So maybe this is the way it's always done. So you just smile and carry on, head down, do a good job. People will notice that eventually that it was me and not her. Um, there was a lack of trust. So my role required going out to different branches to work with leaders. So essentially blocking my schedule as to where I was going to go day to day. And she would ring the bank manager. I remember walking up to one branch and the bank manager came out and he said, oh, your boss has just called to check in on whether or not you're here. So it's easy to point the finger and blame because I can guarantee that that boss did not wake up in the morning thinking, I want to be seen as a toxic boss. Can I make Morag's job frustrating? Um, she was just making sure that we were aligned. And my culpable negligence was I never sat down and spoke with her about it. I never, I never actually said, hey, what is it that you need so that you don't need to ring up and it feels like you're checking up on me? Is that actually what you're doing? Or is it that you just need to know my itinerary and let's sit down a week in advance so you know where I'm going to be Monday to Friday of next week? So often that comes back to the self-awareness. What's my part in creating this scenario? And that's where we can 
where we can raise our in- insights, but also be a better friend at work. Because when people say to you, oh, Morag, you're a bit short there and you've upset me, the first reaction might be to get defensive and say, well, let me show you how wrong you were. And by the way, I was up on a deadline and you, blah, 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 point the finger and blame. Instead of remaining curious of why would a rational human being think that of me? What was it that I did? What might be happening for them that I'm not aware of that caused them to jump to that conclusion? And how do we avoid that in the future? And that allows us to stay at our best in a moment where circumstances and emotions and amygdala hijacks might be causing us to be at our worst. As I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking in my mind, how much time, energy, attention we spend on managing down. Train people, we develop them. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to communicate. What does your leadership presence look like? How much time are we spending on helping people manage up? Are we are we are we investing in the managing up, so to speak? I would challenge that that's not the place we need to focus. I mean, in all the research that I've done, the Ally Mindset Profile I mentioned earlier um, shares the uh, outcome of our research, five practices that make us um, that friend at work, that go-to colleague. And anybody listening here, welcome to take it with our compliments. You can go to skyteam, S-K-Y-E, team.cloud forward slash you, me, we. And you'll get your personal report right away that tells you your preferences, your natural strengths, and sometimes overplayed strengths around those five practices. But here's here's where I'm going. Oh, and I've lost where I was going with that. So, so I, I was saying, why aren't we managing up? And you were saying- Oh, yeah. So one of the uh, research questions that we have after you complete the Ally Mindset Profile is around ally uh, adversaries and rivals, those troublesome, toxic relationships that we were talking about, recognizing that there is I've yet to meet anybody who wakes up with the intent of creating a toxic reputational relationship that morning. Very like rounding error if they exist. But I'll ask how many of you have an ally or adversary adversary or a rival at work? And at the moment, 67% of the leaders who've completed this, that's 1,500 of them so far, say that their success has been undermined by the words or actions of a colleague. 67%. 67%. And then when I say, well, where are those troublesome relationships? Yes, a few are up and a few are down. But most of the troublesome relationships come from our horizontal, our peer relationships, either colleagues at the same table reporting to our boss or peers in the same function sitting in a different geography or just peers in another part of the company. So I would uh, encourage everybody to think not necessarily about managing up and down. Hopefully that's common sense that we're doing that, but to invest strategically in those horizontal relationships across your organization. And that goes back to competing and collaborating and how a lot of people are fighting and to try to climb the ladder. And in order to get there, they think they have to dismantle everybody else that's on their level. And yeah, so what would it look like to develop a team horizontally to to manage themselves together. Maybe manage isn't even the right word as you're thinking about those people. Because a lot of times they're not even, you know, they're maybe siloed. Um, and so you've got like 
the person that's in finance and the person that's in sales and they're leading the sales team and they're leading the finance team and, and, but they're butting up against each other or the obvious one, like customer service and sales over here. So what does it look like to have them engaged in best practice together? Exactly. And and this is it. It could be just sitting down and saying, well, tell me what your boss and your goals are. What are mine? Oh, wow. They are in conflict. Well, now it's not you being a jerk or even me being a pain in the proverbial. It's the how do we work together in spite of these organizational challenges that we've got? And going back to your earlier question around friends and the fact that we use that, that comes from the Gallup research around engagement. For 20 years, they've been asking, do I have a best friend at work? And their research clearly shows that when you can answer yes to that question and the other 11 questions of their Gallup 12, then you have a highly engaged workforce and better bottom line productivity, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we've reframed that question from do I have a friend at work, which is a me first approach, to um, am I a friend at work? Am I willing to give and to collaborate? And that means not necessarily that best friends skipping through the daisies, as I said earlier, come home, meet my mother, we're going to hang out after work. This means can I be a friend and ally for you, even if I don't like you? Because this is about how do we work respectfully together in spite of our differences to enable us to be better together because of our differences. And that is the mindset shift that I'm helping leaders around the world to, to make. How do we get better together because of and in spite of our differences? It's so interesting. I've been fortunate to work with, um, like a CEO will hire me and then I'll work with their executive team. So I might work like three or four people that are on the quote unquote, same level. And I get to have conversations with them that are confidential individually. <laughs> and it, 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 I have to manage that. Right. And I need to make sure that I'm not sharing this with that. And coming from sports, I actually got quite good at that because I worked with athletes that were on the same level and they were competing for playing time. Um, and I still had to hold all that space. Um, it's interesting to your point, about implicit and explicit earlier, there's so much assumption that gets made about people that are on the same level. The amount of times I've heard someone say, I actually don't want that job. I actually don't want the job in front of me. I don't want to be promoted. I actually want to stay here or I want to go over there. And yet people think they might be competing for the same job and one of them may not even want that job. Uh, so that's one thing. And then two, I'm thinking of something called the Ford framework uh, and F-O-R-D is just an acronym for family, occupation, recreation, and dreams. And when you know about someone's family, like you were saying earlier, when you know about their occupation, when you know about what they like to do recreationally, and then the last one, which we often just forget to ask in the workforce, is what are your dreams? And I think if you look at people that are on the same level, knowing what their dreams are can help them collaborate for them to try to work together to help them get to where their dreams are. And if one person dreams on being the CEO and the other person wants to be dreams on being retired, um, like maybe we can work together to make sure everyone gets what they want. And by the way, if the dreams are the same, then we also need to have a conversation about what that looks like in reality. And you used canned candor earlier. We need to be candid about where we are and where we want to go. So the Ford model came up for me as, as you were talking, but I love how you frame this because I, I, 
I think we do. I think we spend most of our time thinking about managers and how they're managing down. We probably don't spend a lot of time on our employees and how they can manage up because if it's a good manager, they need to figure out a way to develop that person. That's where they're being paid a little bit more money to probably do. But yeah, the team, that whole, that level there, if we, if they're not working together, at least the toxicity throughout the whole whole org because then you everyone's in their own tribes and and they're not necessarily working in the best interest of, of the organization. And to be clear, I mean abundance and generosity is the foundational practice of the ally mindset and it is how I'm hardwired. And it's an overplayed strength because it allows me to say yes, I want I'm curious about you. I'm always thinking how can I help you to be more successful? But that continually saying yes is what led to that burnout that happened as we were writing the book and everything else. And so what I'm learning at the moment is how to better articulate my boundaries and because boundaries are about me. That's not rules for you to follow. It's knowing what is what are my boundaries and then both articulating them, but also articulating when people are coming close to causing me to choose to um, overstep them. But also learning to say no, for example, if it isn't a heck yes. So it's all connected. And you think about that analogy of the CEO's uh, role. The reality is every company, there is only one CEO seat. Now, if I aspire to being a CEO, yes, tell people, because the more people who've got skin in the game to help coach and mentor me there, the more likely I'm going to get to that level sooner and quicker. I'm going to get the feedback I need to hear, the opportunities I need in order to grow and flex. But if I do that in a finite, selfish way, because I've got to beat you as my colleague to it, then what happens when I get that seat? You and I are either on the back foot now, and I've got to repair that relationship, Maybe you choose to leave or I'm short-sighted enough and I invite you to leave versus keeping your talents on the team. And even if you choose to leave, better to do it in, oh, yeah, Morag and I were up for a competition. Brian got the CEO role and I decided that was the right time for me to leave and go elsewhere where I became CEO because I've got a great learning story to tell. And as I tell that story about learning and growth, even if I didn't get the prize within the company I'm in, that sells a seed to other talented people around, go to that company because that's how you learn and grow. Versus, yeah, I couldn't hang around because they promoted Brian and, oh my goodness, I can't believe they picked him over me. No, that is doing me a disservice. It's doing you a disservice. It's doing the organization a disservice. How do we learn and grow together? How do we celebrate each other's success? Because ultimately, I'm still better for that journey, even if I didn't get that CEO suite in this company. So let's wind down here. And I think when we think of dreams, uh, you ask a question on your podcast that speaks to dreams, which is you ask people what they want to be when they grow up uh, on the podcast. And I'm curious for you, what do you want to be 10 years from now? What's What are your dreams 10 years from now? Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? So 10 years from now, I want to be inspiring others, and it will be through keynotes, speaking at organizational events, conferences, firing up the individual and collective mindset in a way that just leaves a legacy and ripple effects across the world. That's what I want to be doing, and I'm doing that through the books, through the writing, but back to now in a post-pandemic world in that opportunity to speak. And so- 
my own mind trash, self-awarenesses. I want to elevate my platform skills, which were good before the pandemic, but have atrophied, let's be clear, um, in the three years that we were on lockdown, et cetera. So I'm investing in how do I get to that level? How do I tell a story and craft one where you can see yourself in the trials and tribulations that I've experienced, in the trials and tribulations that we see others at work, but more important, see a glint, a way through that that allows you and us to be better together. That's what I want to do. And Jack Johnson would be proud of you for doing that. And we can play his song better together when you're on stage. Uh, Morag, if people want to follow Sky Team, follow you, follow your platform, uh, bring in for you know consulting or speaking, where's the best place for them to be able to do that? And, and obviously find the books as well. So I'm going to give you three, three resort, three places to find me. Ultimately, with a name like Morag Barrett, you just Google it and you'll find me. But number one, connect with me on LinkedIn. I am active on that platform, the only platform, but it's me that will reply if you connect and message me. Secondly, I invite you to take the Ally Mindset profile. So that is skyteam, S-K-Y-E, team.cloud forward slash you, me, we. And that will add you to, if you choose to, my monthly, well, occasional newsletter. You'll hear from me there. And then, of course, you'll learn more about me and, as importantly, Eric and Ruby uh, at skyteam, S-K-Y-E, team.com. It's interesting. The podcast interview I did before this was with a British person who also said they had a stiff upper lip, lip uh, during our conversation. And um, I also met him through LinkedIn, uh, which is where I believe we connected. And um, I mentioned to him, I'm like, you know, in a time where I think social media, we're all wondering if if this is actually a good thing for our society. I am grateful. And I said this on the podcast with him that I'm able to connect with people from all over the world. Uh, you're in Colorado. I'm in Washington, D.C. Uh, and add value, hopefully, to each other. So I, I'm buying my LinkedIn stock. Uh, not literally. Uh, this is not any stock recommendations <laughs> uh, for that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm grateful for us connecting there and then for you continuously putting amazing content out. And Morag gave her uh, her brand person a shout out earlier. Uh, I would also say like the production, the video production, the quality of what you're putting out is just really, really strong. So um, thank you for that. I'm on LinkedIn as well, at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all of these conversations, including with a few Brits with stiff upper lips uh, who have evolved. It's interesting, like both you and his name's Jack, are are like highly highly evolved people so it's it's just we'll, we'll leave that there uh but strong slash podcast is where all these conversations are more like this was a blast like massive takeaway on this idea of like how do we cultivate allyship at work um really and create like colleagues that are allies and best friends that are quote unquote on our level um and it's something that i'm thinking about deeply as I head into the afternoon and, and work with some of my clients. So thank you for being you and uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I look forward to future conversations. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And at the moment, 67% of the leaders who've completed this, and it's 1,500 of them so far, say that their success has been undermined by the words or actions of a colleague. 
And then when I say, well, where are those troublesome relationships? Yes, a few are up and a few are down. But most of the troublesome relationships come from our horizontal, our peer relationships, either colleagues at the same table reporting to our boss or peers in the same function sitting in a different geography or just peers in another part of the company. So I would encourage everybody to think not necessarily about managing up and down, hopefully that's common sense that we're doing that, but to invest strategically in those horizontal relationships across your organization. 